So as we speak about discipleship tonight, let me start with a good definition. These are two of my favorite. Dallas Willard says, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. John Mark Comer similarly said, discipleship to Jesus is about one simple question. If Jesus were me, if he lived in my city, had my job, my education, made my salary, had my family, how would he live? And then to go back to the scriptures, Paul the apostle profoundly at the end of Colossians chapter one says this in verse 28 and 29. He says, him we proclaim. It's kind of like my message last week. Jesus is our message. Him we proclaim, he's the one. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that this is the mission now that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The message is Jesus. The goal, the destination is becoming like and knowing Jesus. And then he ends saying this, for this I toil, struggling. This is hard work that Paul's speaking about. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And Paul's saying, church in Colossae, church in Durban, Harbor City, he's our message. Jesus is our message. And our goal, our destination, is becoming like and knowing Jesus. And you know what? It's worth giving your life and your energy for those ends. And you know what? As you work hard for the sake of the gospel and disciple making, the Spirit of God works in you and through you to do the thing that he's wanting to do with you. And that's why our vision as a church is to know Jesus and make Jesus known. We want to be disciples and we want to make disciples. See, being a disciple is what we are called to be. It's about identity. And making disciples is what we are called to do. It's our activity as the church and as Christians. So really tonight, we're gonna look at those two ideas, being a disciple and making disciples. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter one. Otherwise, it'll come up on the screen behind me now. I honestly think Mark chapter one tells us almost everything that we need to know about Christian ministry, about serving God. But this is a really key part of the chapter. Mark 1 verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, three things, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And as we see this passage, as we read those words, this is an invitation, it's a calling, and it's a command from Jesus, both to those two men, and then James and John a little bit later, but also to each one of us that hear that invitation. It's a command, it's a calling, it's an invitation to know and follow Jesus and join him in the work that he's doing, to be his disciples. Now, I've called myself a Christian probably as long as I've kind of been conscious or been able to speak, but I think when I was 12, I started getting involved with youth and church, and I would definitely have said, no, I'm a Christian now. And one of the things that surprised me is that the word Christian is only used three times in the whole Bible. I reckon if I'd made you guess, you wouldn't have said three. It would have been a lot higher than that. 
Christian is used three times in the Bible. The word disciple is used 269 times to describe people who serve and follow Jesus. So if you would call yourself a Christian here tonight, that means you're a disciple. That means you're a disciple, and what this message about is about is true of you. you. See, Christians don't just come to church or wear crosses around their necks or these days get a cross tattoo or, I don't know, do all of these Christian things, have Christian values, don't do certain things, do do certain things. What Mark 1 and Jesus and the Scripture shows us is that Christians are people that know and follow Jesus. It's about not about all those other things, it's about knowing and following him. And in Jesus' day, rabbis or teachers were the people with disciples. And Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher. And these rabbis were big deals. They, they had huge crowds of people follow them around, want to hear from them, want to be taught by them, want time with them. They were rock stars or celebrities in their day. And probably being called by a rabbi to follow them was the equivalent of getting a bursary to your university of choice. I thought of Rowan's sister, Catherine, currently studying at Harvard. For many people around the world, a dream. Or maybe getting an internship at a dream company that you would love to work for. Get experience at, maybe get a full-time job at. Being called by a rabbi to follow them was that kind of level for people in first-day Jewish culture. In his book, All Things New, uh, Pete Hughes, the author, he talks about the context of first century Judaism, and he talks about the idea of what is going on here, because we miss so much by not understanding that day and age. And he says this, come follow me. These three words would have been totally life-changing, and to understand why, we need to explore the educational system of first century Judaism. The first stage of education, roughly equivalent to primary school in our day, was known as Bet Sefer, House of the Book. At Bet Sefer, the children would learn to read and write by immersing themselves in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. If you know the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And by the end of Bet Sefer, most children would have memorized the entire Torah. I don't know how you're doing it, your Bible reading and memorization, but that is incredible. I mean, Genesis alone is 50 chapters of Scripture, and these kids would learn Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would get it in them. They would be able to recite it. They would have memorized it by heart. Then the next step for was boys only. The boys with capacity for more learning was Bet Talmud, the house of learning. At this stage of their education, alongside learning the family trade, whatever that might have been, whatever your dad would have done, the students would be immersed in the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, again, memorizing large portions and becoming well-versed in the Jewish tradition of question and answer learning to answer questions with further questions that led to deeper revelation and understanding. At the end of Bet Talmud, the majority of students had hit their ceiling for learning and left school to work in the family business. But for those hungry for more, they could approach a rabbi, a teacher, and ask to become their disciple, which was the final school known as Bet Midrash. And then this rabbi would subject these potential students or pupils to a grueling set of questions because they wanted to see what was inside them. Was this person going to be a great disciple of theirs? Because this disciple would carry their name. 
they'd be a reflection of them, you know? So-and-so would say, oh, this is Jesus, or Paul, or Gamaliel, or uh, Shema, or Hillel, one of their disciples, and they go, oh, okay, I know where they learned what they learned. This disciple would reflect their rabbi through their teaching and their life. So they went through a hard time of interview and questioning. And the people, and most of them, would be turned away. For the unsuccessful students, the rabbi would encourage them to have children and pray that their children would one day be rabbis and in the meantime learn the family trade. It's quite cold. <laughs> for the successful students, the cream of the crop, the, the absolute top people who applied for this role, the rabbi would say, come follow me. These three words were this invitation to become a rabbi and train with this rabbi. And this was the highest of callings, the greatest privilege, and what every parent wanted for their child. And then the community would send these children off with the rabbi with this blessing. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea was that you would spend such time with, you'd be so close with this rabbi you were training with, that you would not only be covered by their teachings and character and practice, but the dust from their sandals as they walked would get flicked up on you. That's how close you would be to them. And this discipleship journey was marked out by three parts. Being with the rabbi, becoming like the rabbi, and doing what the rabbi did. And what we see in Mark chapter one is Peter and Andrew, James and John, four failed students. We don't know how far along they went, you know, if they were out after level one, out after level two, but we know they didn't make it to level three. And here they've got a rabbi named Jesus walking up to them out of nowhere and saying the words that their parents had always wanted them to hear and the words that they had always dreamed of hearing, come follow me. And they left everything that they'd been doing to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and carry on his work. And what we see in Mark 1 and what we learn through the New Testament is that Jesus does the same with you and I. We don't go to him and say, hey, can we follow you? Can we be your disciple? Jesus comes to us and invites us into this incredibly privileged space. He invites us into this relationship to be with him, become like him, to carry on his work in this world, and then he sends us out to do it. And really the question that I wanna leave with you tonight is how do you respond to the privilege and responsibility of being asked by Jesus to follow him. How will you respond? Because this is each of our responsibility. The reality is no one else can respond to the call of Jesus for you. No one else can do the work of becoming a disciple for you. No one else can say yes and fulfill all of the obedience and learn and become like Jesus for you. Each one of us needs to respond personally and then not just respond once, but choose again and again daily as we wake up in the mornings, as Jesus leads us to say, I will follow you wherever you go, whatever you want. I'm with you, Jesus. I'm going wherever you're going. You are my teacher, my rabbi, my Lord, and I am yours. I belong to you. And when Jesus calls these four men, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, says, come follow me, they know exactly what he's saying. Some of you are going, oh, that's really interesting context and history, but this is the air they breathed. This is the world they lived in. They knew it. As soon as they heard those words, they knew exactly what he was calling them to, inviting them into the responsibility of it, the expectation of it, and the privilege of this invitation from Jesus. Probably all of us know the game, follow the leader, I assume. Uh, 
I mean, I forgot about it for years, but I thought about it when I was preparing all of this. If you don't know, follow the leader meant you'd be on the playground. One kid who was like a real leader would say, hey guys, let's play this great game. I'm gonna lead. And they'd go out front and everyone would get in a row behind them. And this confident kid would start to walk and all the other kids would follow them. And if they did an action, you did the same action. Now this is where the story differs a little bit. If you didn't do what they did, you'd be out until there was one person standing or something like that. This example of follow the leader and imitating whatever it is they're doing is so similar to what's going on in Mark chapter one. Jesus is saying, follow me, come, imitate me. And Jesus isn't just anyone. He's not just some confident kid who self-appoints himself on the playground. Jesus is creator, he's Lord, he's savior, he's teacher, he's king. And he comes and says to every one of us in this room, none of us are excluded, he comes and says, come and follow me. And Jesus is on the move. He invites us to obey him, he invites us to learn from him, he invites us to imitate him. But as one person I heard said once, he's a moving Messiah. And as we come into 2022, one of the questions I wanna say to those who are Christians in the room, is Jesus out front for you still? You know, you started out following him, but are you still going where he's going? Are you still going in the direction he's in? Are you still imitating him in the things that he's doing? Or have you wandered off in your own agenda, your own place to do your own thing? The invitation is to follow the leader, to come and follow me. As we get into this year, it's a good moment to reset and remember, am I following Jesus or have I gone off on my own way? Are you close with him? Are you learning from him? Are you continuing his work here in Durban like a disciple is called to do? Now, I do wanna also just point out one really important thing in Mark chapter one. And that's that there is absolutely no prerequisite to following Jesus that we see in this chapter. What I mean is, Jesus doesn't sit down with each of them. Okay, Peter, can we just have a little pull aside? Andrew, okay, it's your turn. James, you and me, John, okay. He doesn't pull aside with each of them and start to ask them questions about their life, their upbringing, what they've studied. He doesn't ask them their theology. He doesn't ask them their views on certain things. He doesn't even have a questionnaire where they can tick certain boxes around their morality, their history, what they've done and haven't done, you know? He doesn't take them through that. He doesn't ask for character references. He doesn't say, hey, can I phone your parents, your boss, your close friends, find out a little bit more about you. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, come as you are. Come where you are now, come and follow me. And I wanna say that's true of our invitation to follow Jesus too. The invitation is come as you are right now. Don't change everything first. Don't put everything right. Come as you are and follow me. Start where you're at. But we see in his words, it's also not just a call to stay as we are. Because Jesus' words are repent and believe. Come follow me, repent and believe. The word repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and a change of life. Jesus is saying, okay, repent, turn from the things that you've been following, the, the things you've been taking hold of, and believe in me. Take hold of me. Which means that for discipleship, what happens is Jesus comes right into the center of our lives, to the most important and significant place. And that's where we keep him. That's where he stays. Discipleship puts him at the center because we've met him and found that he is the greatest thing. So that's the first idea here. But we're not just called to be disciples, we're also called to make disciples. Paul the Apostle 
puts it this way in his writings to a certain church. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Feels like quite a bold invitation. Follow after me, come on, come follow me as I follow Jesus, I'll show you the way. But in a sense, every Sunday as I or whoever stands up here and we teach God's word, we're saying that in our life groups that meet every week. That, that's one of the things we're saying is come follow Jesus with me. You know, Come and follow me, I'll, I'll be an example, I'll be a bit of a guide or a coach along the journey. The reality is discipleship is responding personally to Jesus' call to follow him and, and it's also calling others to follow him along with us. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, says that Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which, I mean, that alone, we've got to process and think through that Jesus has all authority over everything, everywhere, always, and what that means for our lives. But he says, in light of that, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, to obey, to live out all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Just maybe an encouragement to those of you who are Christians, but it doesn't feel like Jesus is near. You see that there? I am with you always to the end of the age. Just because you might not feel him closely right now doesn't mean he's left you. Doesn't mean he's not with you. What we see in these passages is we are not just called to be disciples, we are called to make disciples. And we're not just called to follow Jesus, we're also called to help others follow Jesus. And that means that actually faithfully following Jesus, actually living as a Christian, includes making disciples and prioritizing helping other people to know him and follow him and understand his teachings and ways through our lives. And I know for a lot of people this feels intimidating. I've been a pastor for a while now, and I know just what is inside of our hearts, just the, the insecurity and, I don't know, self-deference where it comes to some of these things. This can be intimidating. And maybe you're sitting there now as I've spoken about this, and you're like, Grant, okay, I get part one. Following Jesus, I'm in for that. But me making disciples, me saying someone else follow me as I follow Christ, like, no, nah, I can't do that. And you've checked out and you're going, it's the start of 2022. I wish God was doing something a little bit more practical. This is not relevant for my life. I'm not one of those people. The reality is in Mark 1 and Matthew 28, we see that we're all called to be those people. So please don't disqualify yourself and say something like, who am I to disciple others? Who am I to help other people follow Jesus? Because you don't need to be like a black belt, Navy SEAL, really shiny halo kind of person to do this. You just have to be on the journey. You just have to be one step ahead. You just have to be walking after him yourself, even imperfectly. Because really making disciples is just helping others to do what we're already doing ourselves. Making disciples is just about helping other people to follow Jesus that we're wrestling to work out how to do ourselves with our lives. You know, this is messy, life is messy. Life is real, life is imperfect. We're not getting this perfect all of the time. But as we try to follow Jesus at work, we're able to help others wrestle with what it looks like to follow Jesus at work. As we try and follow Jesus when it comes to our money, whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, we can help other people to wrestle with and work out what it looks like to follow Jesus with their money. 
as we wrestle with our sexuality and following Jesus, whatever that might mean for you, as we wrestle with our marriages, our singleness, our relationships, our friendships, with decision-making, with everything, as we wrestle with what it looks like to follow Jesus in the big things of life, we can help other people to do the same thing because we're on the same journey. We don't have to have arrived. We're on the journey of following him. You don't have to have it all together. You just have to be one step ahead to help someone in this journey. And I thought that for some of you, you know, for example, maybe you started to follow Jesus yesterday. You became a Christian yesterday and you walked in here today because you went, I need to find a church. I think that's what we do. You might go, oh, Grant, I just started this out. I'm fresh. I've got nothing to give. Yes, you do. You've got a story from yesterday of God at work in your life that you can share with someone who hasn't started to follow him yet. You've got a testimony of God's goodness and grace in your own life that could encourage someone else. Maybe this last week, over seven days, you read the book of Colossians, which is four chapters. So you're not even reading a chapter a day, but you've read four chapters of the Bible. You've worked through the book of Colossians. You could help someone who's never read Colossians before. You could help someone with who hasn't read Colossians in a long time. Or maybe someone who's asking the questions that God's been speaking to you out of his word about. You could help them. Or maybe for some of you, God has been teaching you something over the last while as you have gone through deep personal pain and suffering. And it's been hard and it's been unpleasant and it's felt fruitless and it's felt unfair and it's felt unkind. But you've got a testimony of God's character and goodness in the midst of the storm you've been going through. And you can share with someone else who's going through a storm. You can share your testimony of God at work in the storm you've been through. We all have something that we can give to help someone else follow and know Jesus more. We're all called into this journey of making disciples. So how do we do this? We start where we're at. Start where we're at right now. Jesus did that. Jesus invited people into his everyday life where he was at. His discipleship strategy was so simple. You can go and look at this through one of the gospels yourself. He spent time with people. He set them an example of what it looked like to live out God's ways. He taught them from God's word. He corrected them at times. You'll see those hard moments where Jesus tells his disciples off because they're doing their own thing or doing something they shouldn't. And lastly, he sends them out like Mark 1 and Matthew 28 speak about. He sends them out to do the work of God. What we see throughout the scriptures and in Jesus' life is that discipleship is relational. It involves our relationship with Jesus, following him, and then our relationship with others, helping them to follow him. And this week, I had two opportunities to reflect on this, two at least that stood out to me. The first was on Tuesday night, we had a moment with um, Krista and Luke's life group, which was really, really special. Um, they were actually handing over their life group to Lisa and Jamie, to Nent. Some of you are going, hang on, they're taking over the church and they're taking over that group. Some of you are going, if I join that group, I can get to know Jamie and Lisa very well. You're correct, that's a strategy. That's a little life hack for those of you who wanna to get to know them. But basically, they were taking over this group and there was a moment for the people in that group just of honoring Luke and Krista. And what was so beautiful is hearing what came out of their mouths to love them and thank them and appreciate them and honor them. And you know what? No one in the group said, hey, remember that night you spoke on this? That changed my life. 
Or remember that prayer you prayed. That moment changed my life forever. Or remember that one conversation we had that one time. I'm a different person after that. No one said that. People spoke about their character, their example, their kindness, their investment, their words, their ongoing encouragement in certain areas, the space they created in their home, the way they did things. There wasn't a moment that changed lives. It was a process. It was what God was doing through them over time. And I was struck by that because I think that's been true of my life. People over time who I've spent time with have set me an example of God's ways. I've learned from them and how they make decisions and how they live their life and how they follow God and seek Him. I've been impacted by that. On Friday, I was sitting with uh, Jamie at Humble. Got some friends outside here talking. It's absolutely fine. I was sitting with Jamie outside uh, on Friday, and we had a five and a half hour meeting. It was great, 10 till 3.30, just talking through church handover stuff. It was really, really good, just intentional but meandering, just covering lots of ground. And he said something to me that was so helpful. He just said, hey, Grant, I know you've got three sermons left. And he said, don't put too much pressure on yourself for any one of them. And he said, you know what? The reality is I've handed over a few things. I've led a few things. No one ever comes to me and says, hey, that last sermon of yours crushed it and changed my life. Thanks, Jamie. He says, it's people coming to him saying, it's your example over time. It's time together. It's conversations. When I was um, 18 years old, I joined the church that he was a part of. And Jamie kind of took me under his wing for a while. And we ended up being in the same life group. Uh, We ended up being the same youth. We ended up praying together on campus. We spent a lot of time together. And I was saying to him, I don't remember those last messages he's speaking about. I don't. But there were moments along the journey that were significant but probably much more than that. It was the many conversations and examples and watching his life and learning from him that impacted me the most. And I think that's true. As we lead others and as we're led by others, it's what God does through example and time and teaching over and over and over and all sorts of things that shapes us more and more into the image of Jesus. I think I'd really encourage all of you, if you're not in a life group at this church, to get involved in one. This is just an aside, but our life groups start on Tuesday night. In our small groups, as Harbor City breaks up into homes around the city, that is where we build community and make disciples. I think if you don't have a bunch of friends in this church who know you, who care for you, love you, pray for you, who challenge you, you're gonna struggle in any church. And in those groups, what happens is relationships are formed and we grow in the journey of following Jesus together. It's happened in my life. It's happened in that group. It's happened in relationships I've seen. God changes lives in life groups. I think what happens is over time, disciple makers impact people through who they are. Yes, it's through what they say. I know you are impacted week after week by the teaching of the Bible here on Sundays but I also know that it's through relationships in the church, through the example of leaders, through conversations that I had, not just once, but over years, through the kindness of people, the love of people, the encouragement and correction of people, through the grace of people that we grow and are shaped to be who God wants us to be. Sadly, sadly, disciple-making isn't like fast food. I, I love Mr. D and Uber Eats. I don't know if you're a fan, but there's such a privilege about just being able to get out an app and say, I want a pizza, 
and 30 minutes later it arrives at your door and you don't have to do anything. It's the dream. And I, as I've been working in church since I was 21, uh, I think, 21, I wish that's how this worked. I wish it was like, cool, pull out the app, prayer training, done. 30 minutes later, the church knows prayer, prayer warriors. Bible training, boom, hit the app. Everyone knows the Bible, we're good to go. If that's how it worked, disciple making would be the dream. Church would be so, so easy. But that's not how this works. That's not what Jesus did. Disciple making isn't instant. You can't microwave a disciple, like popcorn, just pop, 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 it's ready. This happens slowly over a lifetime. David Platt, writing about this, says, making disciples is not an easy process. I'm gonna put you off for a second, but I hope I reel you back in. It is trying, it is messy, it is slow, tedious, even painful at times. It is all these things because it is relational. Jesus has not given us an effortless step-by-step formula for impacting nations for his glory. He has given us people, and he has said live for them, love them, serve them, and lead them. Lead them to follow me, and lead them to lead others to follow me. In the process, you'll multiply the gospel to the ends of the earth. At the end of one of the Gospels, um, the Gospel of John, Jamie's favorite Gospel, I think he's wrong, but I know it is his favorite. Uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, says this to his 12. John 20, verse 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, that God the Father in heaven sent his Son from heaven to earth, to make disciples. And then he sends us out to do the same. This moment after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is a really empowering moment, actually. He breathes on them. The, the Spirit of God has breathed on them to empower them and give them life to do what God has called them to do. And then he's like a mother bird pushing the chicks out of the nest. They've all been comfortable in the nest. They've been hatched in the nest. They've been fed in the nest. They've lived their whole lives in the nest. And now they're being pushed out to fly and do what birds are made to do. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He's fed them, he's taught them, he's trained them, he's been with them. And now he says, okay, I'm going, you need to carry on. I've been sent by the Father, now I send you out. And I hope this sermon serves as something of a reminder and encouragement and a call to follow Jesus personally. But more than that, I hope you feel the mother bird of heaven, Jesus, pushing you out of the nest to make disciples, or to call people to help you follow Jesus on the journey, in the messiness and the reality of life. 